What are the different layers of fees that Opportunity Zone investors should be aware of? And how much can investors expect to pay in fees to qualified Opportunity Funds? Find out next. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson, and today I'm joined by Jonathan Miller. Jonathan is founder and CEO of ParsonX Enterprises, a financial services firm that owns two retail broker-dealers, an SEC-registered investment advisor, and an advisory group and asset manager that manages alternative investment assets in real estate, including Opportunity Zones. Jonathan joins us today from his home office in Parker, Colorado. Jonathan, thanks for joining us and welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me, Jimmy. It's, it's a pleasure. And uh, I... Uh, I know that with everything going on in Ozones, you're staying very busy uh, on your website and uh, on the podcast, and you're doing a great job. So thanks for having me. I am. I'm, I'm doing my best, and, uh, and you're welcome. And thank you again for joining us. Um, well, today's episode, I want to focus on largely on, uh, well, we're going to cover a wide range of issues, but, but first, let's start by focusing on fees and, and fee structures that investors deal with when they invest in qualified opportunity funds. So Jonathan, what should investors expect to pay in fees to their qualified opportunity fund managers? That's a really good question. And unfortunately, it hasn't been standardized yet, I think, in the opportunity zone space. Um, but I can relate it and kind of tell you that we're seeing things all over the board out there. But most, at least on the real estate side, almost all of the funds that are out there are development or redevelopment funds. And so there is, I would say, almost some industry standard fund structures that exist and in, in different variations of those for developers that have gone out and gotten financial partners in the past. Um, and then you also have maybe just normal private equity type fund structures. And I think the interesting thing is that you have sometimes, in some cases, those are overlaid and they you have a financial fee structure and you'll have a developer that has a fee structure and those two are interacting to create a product for investors. And so it's really important that investors pay attention to what they are being charged. Um, a couple things I would point out is there are front end and back end fees for every investment that folks are going to do. And a lot of the development fee structures, because they're developing real estate, has a lot of upfront fees. So you'll have a management fee that's paid to a fund manager. You'll have development fees, construction management fees. You'll have uh, just a variety of fees. And the thing that's important for investors to understand is all of those things come off the top, right? Those are the fees that are being paid, whether it is a successful project or not a successful project. And then you have the backend fees, which are referred to as carried interest or promote, where a developer or a fund manager wants to take a portion of the profits if they perform at a certain level. So if they typically, if they exceed a benchmark, then they're going to get a share of the profits. And I think as we've discussed getting ready for this show or, or it, when we've met at um, in Las Vegas at the Opportunity Zone conference is the fact that I, most people, I think, don't fully understand the fee structures that are inside of these funds. And it's, it's extremely important because I have no problem with fees. And I think most people 
understand that paying good fees for good service or good value is a, that should happen in uh, in our economy and in opportunity zone funds. But understanding how much of the profits are going to ultimately make their way through to the investors in these type of funds, that's very important. And and there are a lot of layers that make it sometimes difficult to easily discern that for investors. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you there. And I want to dive deeper into this discussion of fees in just a minute. But but before we do that, I, I want to back up for a second and get your background. Jonathan, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you got to where you are today? Sure. So I have uh, been an entrepreneur my whole life and I've been in, uh, a registered representative with a couple different broker dealers. And uh, in 2006, 2007, we actually started what is now Parsonex. Um, we have a couple different broker dealers, an SEC registered investment advisor, about 50 reps across the country, 10 offices. And I've also been a one six partner in an asset management firm for what you would call a small family office, a multifamily office. Um, and I'm a one six partner there. And we've invested in commercial real estate, in oil and gas projects, but as ourselves, as principals, not, uh, not through a fund structure. And so we have um, some alternative asset management expertise in real estate. And then that's led us to become more involved as opportunity zones and the opportunities that exist within those zones have become very apparent. So we have, we are advising, um, we're actively advising a lot of people and players in that space. Good. And getting back to the fees now, do you have a range of numbers you can give me in terms of, of what investors can pay both on the, the front end fees that come off the top and the back end fees, the, the promote and the, and the carried interest fees, what, what typical, uh, percentages, a range of percentages are you seeing? Wow. That's a hard question because they are all over the board, but I, I can just tell you in general, I'll give you a few different categories of, of fees. So first of all, if you look at just the dis distribution of the investment product itself, I would tell you that institutional investors typically are not paying commissions or any fees when they're going into products, right? Because they're buying, institutional investors are typically direct sourcing through managers, um, deals in, in the space. So they're not typically paying upfront fees, maybe a 2% what's called O1O, organization and offering expense. Um, but then you would have what are the products that are sold through broker dealers and the fees there would probably range between seven to 12% upfront off the top just for distribution fees. Now let's just take 10% as a number. That means that if you are investing in a product that pays a commission, um, nine cents or ninety cents of every dollar is actually going to the fund. Now, before people think, "Oh my gosh, this is the worst thing ever," that's just the that, that's just the distribution model that exists. They might not have heard of that opportunity if it wasn't for the broker or the investment advisor that recommended that product to them. So that's just that's really a cost of distribution to the funds, but it's it's an, it's a significant cost. Um, then you would have typically a management fee and the industry standard typically is 2% management fee, but that management can, fee can be charged in a variety of ways. You can have it on uh, the invested dollars. You can have it, that could be gross or net invested dollars. It could be off of the assets managed 
but but does that include the debt that was taken? You know, because so the point is, there's lots of complexities around every fee that's charged, and all of those will be disclosed in offering documents. But understanding those is very pertinent to someone making a decision to invest in a fund, in my opinion. So, so you have your distribution costs, then you have your asset management fees, which like we said, is around 2% uh, annually. But then in a development fund, you have another set of fees. And what, what is typical, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, it's just typical, is you'll see an acquisition fee to purchase projects. You'll see a disposition fee. You'll see uh, loan arrangement fees. You'll see development fees, uh, construction management fees. All of those add up. And at the end of the day, it's just making sure there's a clear understanding of what those fees are, who's getting those fees. And the economics of the deal have to make sense in spite of all those fees. To reference another industry, if you look at mutual funds and ETFs, there's a reason that ETFs and index funds like Vanguard are so popular these days. And that's because they have said, hey, we don't think that most active managers can outperform. So why have all those extra fees? We're just going to offer a very low cost product to the marketplace. And again, I'm not saying that that's the way people should or shouldn't go, but it is I mean, the economics of how much flows those types of funds have received proves that people do value uh, value paying less in fees because it ultimately comes out of their investment dollars. So no problem with fees. It's just you have to understand what you're paying, who's getting it, and at the end of the day, how that affects your economics of investing in into a, a particular deal. Right. and. What what is the average, or maybe maybe you can go through the average and the best case scenario and the worst case scenario. What percentage of the economic gain of the fund are investors typically getting back after they pay in, into the fees? It's so hard to say averages, and in fact, I would refer you to like the due diligence firms like like Buttonwood or Factright or McLaw, um, because in the broker dealer and RIA space, those guys probably see a lot more deals and know what the range of fees should be. I would tell you a, a lot of development deals that are out there typically would would have a structure where, and this is outside of opportunity zones, just you'd have a development structure where the developer is guaranteed, you know, having delivery guarantees, um, signing off on a lot of the risk, you know, performance guarantees, saying we will complete this project. Uh, and then the, the financial investors in a development deal would typically get some sort of a preferred return, all their money back. And then there would be a split of beyond that with, with the developers. And it's probably a 60-40 60% to investors, 40% to developers, maybe 50-50. Again, these are all negotiated and there's there's not a pure standard structure, but it would be 50-50, 60-40. I'm sure there's plenty that are outside of those ranges after paying all the investors' money back and a preferred return would be somewhat typical. Does that answer the question? Yes, it does. So what I was trying to get at is, you know, investors are providing all of the equity, all of the capital into these private equity funds. And, and specifically, I want to kind of focus on opportunity zone funds here, but they're only getting maybe 50% of the economic gain, um, whereas the, the fund manager is, is taking quite a bit in fees. For, you know, and 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 possibly rightfully so. I'm not saying uh, that's that's problematic. I'm 
and he's taking on a lot of risk himself as well. Um, but, but just wanted to drive that point home that investors should just be aware of what they're paying in fees, obviously, and, and, and what percentage of the economic value they're actually deriving from the fund. Is that correct? Yes. So a couple, a couple things that brings up is first of all, the investors should always outside of the fees to operate, which would be like a, a management fee and the project construction and development costs. But all those fees are top line fees, meaning that the developer gets paid those fees, the asset manager gets paid those fees, whether or not the fund is successful. And there is a reasonable amount that needs to be paid in order for people to successfully operate. But beyond that, the investor should be expecting, in my opinion, all of their money back, a preferred return, and then a split of the excess beyond that in general terms. One of the things you brought up is I think a lot of people are entering the space and saying, well, developers, we had an example of this where we came across this and somebody had come to us and said, hey, well, I have this land I own and I would like to develop it. It happens to be in an opportunity zone. I would, I've heard that developers should get a 60-40 split. And the answer then comes back, but you're not a developer. And they say, well, I could be a developer. <laughs> and thus, I think, is part of the challenge with the rush into, uh, into the opportunity zones is that everybody all of a sudden is a developer. And if you're working with, with you want to make sure that you're working with good fund managers, good developers with a track record that have had success in developing the types of assets they're attempting to develop doesn't mean that someone with less experience can't be successful. It does mean that if you're an investor, you're taking on a significant more risk by working with someone who is unproven and doesn't have a track record in the space. Right. And I will ask you about that a little later on in the program. Uh, I'll ask you about the, the gold rush into opportunity zones and any problems that you've seen come about as a result of such a rush. Uh, Jonathan, when you and I met at the Opportunity Zone Expo in Las Vegas a couple of months ago, uh, one of the first things we, we talked about was you, you introduced a new concept to me, which was the double promote issue in qualified opportunity funds. Um, can you explain for our listeners what, what you mean by double promote and, and what do investors need to be aware of? Yeah. So a double promote would be one way to refer to the, the fact that there's two structures on top of it, potentially in a qualified opportunity fund. So we talked about how developers would have a split. So a developer, let's say as a shovel ready project, and they would like to get investors and maybe pay an 8% preferred return, all the money back, and then split split everything after that 50-50. That, that's, that is not an atypical, that would be, a, I think, a fairly typical ask from a developer. What happens is you then sometimes have funds which are the financial structure saying we will invest in opportunity zone projects and they they want to go and become the limited partner for that developer. So they say, oh, eight, you'll pay us 8% and uh, then give us all our money back plus 8% plus 50% of the profits. They underwrite it. They say this is a good deal. The challenge for the end investor can be that that, that fund itself might have its own fee structure. So in addition to what the developer has as part of the deal, you can have the fund structure saying, well, we're going to do 
in private equity, a two and 20 deal where we're going to pay a 2% management fee in the fund. And then after we pay our investors in the fund, the financial side of it, the an 8% return, then we're going to take 20% of the profits on top of that. Well, in that case, you have the developer creating a structure for the deal. Then you have the financial structure that's investing in that deal, but the end investor can sometimes be getting hit with layered fees. And so that's what I meant when I think we were talking about the double promote is that the promote would be a carried interest. The developer gets a carried interest. The fund manager gets a carried interest. And again, I'm not saying yay or nay. I am saying I don't think that's abundantly clear to all investors and, and it should be. And it's something that when you're investing in opportunity zone funds, it's critical that folks are understanding, okay, if this is a great project and the, we think I, I want to invest in it or a multi-asset fund, what, is, what, what percentage of the dollars, if it's successful, go to me? Because you don't want to say, hey, if 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 it gets if it if it gets twenty times if it, if it has a twenty x on the project, then I make money. That's probably not a good deal, right? It needs to make make sense in what would be realistic for that real estate market, right? And if you're you're paying a promote kind of twice, right? It's 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 layered because the the fund is paying a promote to the developer, but then the limited partner, the investor, the retail investor, individual investors paying a, a promote to the, to the fund manager. Yeah. It, it, the, those fees start adding up. So, um, yeah, we're not saying this is definitely right or wrong, but we're just, we're just advising that investors be aware of this and thoroughly read those PPMs, right? Is that where they can find out more information? Yep. Or talk to, to their investment advisor or whoever's representing the product to them. I, Jimmy, I think in talking about this, I'm going to have to steal what you just said, because that probably is the clearest way to say it, is that the fund is paying a promote to the developer, and, but then the limited partners in the fund are paying a promote to the fund manager, and thus it, it can dilute the returns to the ultimate investor. Right, right, absolutely. Um, so what are some different fund structures and fee structures that you're seeing what what is a typical qualified opportunity fund actually look like how is it structured whoa <laughs> that is a loaded question because I, it really has been all over the place in fact when we were advising uh, on this and and having to make some decisions uh, and recommendations on this it was very difficult to to benchmark the market because we really are seeing structures all over the place. That's partially because you have a lot of non-sophisticated entrants into the market who are saying, hey, I've never done a fund before. I've never managed assets. I've never been a fiduciary before, but this fund thing sounds great. So I think it really is all over the place on how it's structured, and, and um, which makes it that much harder for investors to evaluate. Right, right. So, and in that kind of brings me to my next question then for an individual investor he has a few different options just an individual retail investor should he buy through his broker dealer or his ria or should he invest directly into these funds some funds have have set up websites or or phone numbers you can call where you can you can invest directly other funds are only available through uh, the broker dealer channel at the investor level though at the at the individual investor level what should he do and what difference does it make uh, whether he invests directly or through his, through his advisors, broker-dealers, RIAs? That is a really good question. And since 
As the CEO of Parsonix Enterprises, the parent company, we own two broker-dealers and a registered investment advisor. I definitely believe that people should work with um, a financial professional who's advising them. But, but let me give you a little more context to that answer. It's not just a self-serving answer in this case. Um, because first of all, I want people to participate and in, in, in invest whatever works for them. And I think there, there are a lot of, there's these new rules that came out several years ago that allow uh, broader distribution of, uh, of, of private investments. I, I'm opinionated. I believe that for most people, um, really they should be accredited investors and sophisticated investors that are looking at investing in a private opportunity fund. And I know people are going to probably say, oh my gosh, that, what, if, what if I'm not that and I want to invest? I'm not saying you can't, but, but I'm saying there's reasons that it, it, it traditionally has been accredited and sophisticated folks that are going into these programs. The first thing is there is a complete lack of liquidity. In, in a real estate or any sort of investment, in order to get the biggest tax break, which is the 10-year step up, the tax-free gain, which is arguably one of the greatest tax breaks we've seen in a generation, if it's done properly, somebody has to hold for 10 plus years. So let's just say 12 years. That's a long time to hold any sort of an investment, even if you are an accredited and sophisticated investor. So uh, someone would have to have enough liquidity. They would have to have then also the sophistication, the ability to underwrite the asset. So what happens in like the family office space or with institutional investors is you'll typically have a family office that maybe let's say has a half a billion or a billion dollars. They are running their own RIA. They have a president that manages or executive team and, and they have CFAs that are managing their wealth and they can go look at individual deals very easily because they have the sophistication to do that. I think your, your normal retail accredited investor, I would argue that unless they have a real estate or an investment banking background, they probably aren't going to underwrite the asset or the fund or the fund managers with the level of due diligence that you would really need to in order to one understand the risks and two understand the economic upside that 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 is achievable and all those sort of things. So I think that in this space, broker dealers and RIAs can and should play a very significant role. Unfortunately, because the our industry moves slow, I think a lot of broker dealers and RIAs have been very slow to enter the space, and and they're really behind a lot of them right now because. We're entering the second half of 2019 with you know the 15% tax incentive uh, or, or reduction of, of capital gains on, on the investment used to put into the fund will be expiring at the end of this year. So I, I guess what I'm saying is I think that they need to get on board fast and, because it is a tremendous benefit for the right client uh, in, in the right proportion. You don't want to put all your portfolio into a non-liquid investment, no, how, no matter how good the, the, the tax breaks are. So I just think that there's a level of sophistication when people are investing in qualified opportunity funds that is needed that a, an educated financial advisor or registered representative or, or registered investment advisor can provide to clients that more than likely, unless they're just totally into it, they wouldn't be able to, from a time or expertise standpoint, provide for themselves. So hopefully that's not too long of an answer, but that's, I, so I, I believe, yes, if they, if you have the ability to go through a, a qualified financial representative, investment representative that 
retail accredited investors will be well served because they'll be making better investment choices, hopefully, than than going direct to a lot of funds. Because remember, a fund, if you go direct, they have an incentive to sell you that particular investment, whereas a registered representative hopefully has access to a lot of investments. An RIA is a fiduciary saying, this is what I think the best investment is for you. So I am a huge advocate for financial advisors in the industry who who care about their clients and want to do a great job. No, absolutely. That that sounds that sounds great. That answer makes perfect sense to me, especially with complex financial instruments such as qualified opportunity funds, the level of due diligence that is needed. I mean, this is kind of a, a different beast than publicly traded ETFs or mutual funds or stocks or bonds. This is this is something that that requires a a pretty good amount of sophistication and 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 expertise to invest in. But at the same time, you you admitted that uh, some of these financial advisors, these broker dealers, RIAs, are kind of a little bit behind the curve, and and the clock is ticking here. We're less than six months away from the fifteen percent step up expiring at the end of twenty nineteen, and and there's a little bit of a rush to get on board. What's been the what's been the biggest challenge for these RIAs and broker dealers in getting on board? Is it has it been regulatory or or risk or or how they've are they struggling to figure out how to earn a commission and and wrap these into their into their investment management uh, portfolios effectively or what 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 exactly is the issue there? Well, I think I think the real issue. I, no, I think that all of those mechanisms exist. Um, I'll make a side comment on on that. Most of the products would never make it through due diligence. <laughs> so um, if you look at the, I hate to generalize, but if you looked at the all of the different quote unquote, opportunity funds that have been launched. I would venture to guess that 90 plus percent of those funds, I could be totally off on that number, would not stand up to the scrutiny and due diligence that a broker dealer or a registered investment advisor would go through with that, that, that product or that sponsor. So therefore, you would not have those folks selling through broker dealers and sponsors, but rather direct sourcing capital and selling it themselves. I think the real holdup in the financial advisor side is that due diligence is something that with all of the good and large firms especially is taken very seriously. And, and they're not just doing due diligence on the product structure, they're doing due diligence. And I knew you had a guest a couple of weeks ago that was talking about this, um, doing due diligence on the sponsor, who are the people that are managing it, what's their experience, what's their track record. Uh, of course, nobody has a track record in opportunity zones, but maybe what's previous real estate track record. Uh, so. Due diligence is something that takes a long time, especially with new sponsors in most broker dealers and registered investment advisors. And and we don't have a long time, obviously, till the end of the year. So it's it's like a it's it's tougher because due diligence and compliance departments want to make sure that they're doing their job and they should be very cautious um, about what they approve for the for their reps to sell to clients. And and there's a little bit of time pressure now because the regs, in my opinion, really just got a lot clearer in April, right? And we have the hearing coming up soon, but it's gotten clearer and clearer exactly how these things are going to work. But then that leaves us with, as we're getting clarity, we're already mid-year and funds are just starting to launch. And um, there's a whole process you go through with broker-dealers from a due diligence review standpoint that just takes time. So I do believe there'll be a lot of firms that will expedite that that due diligence process, not in terms of cutting corners, just in terms of having to dedicate more personnel hours or time or money to conducting due diligence and to find some really good funds that their clients can then 
utilize in their portfolios because done properly, done with with a company that can manage the assets well. So strong investments are the underlying that have they have to have good investments and opportunity zones. But secondly, they have to be able to qualify as an opportunity fund. Over a long over a 12-year period, they're gonna to have to meet all the asset tests, they're gonna to have to distribute according to all the right rules, they're gonna to have to make sure that they don't disqualify from some of the benchmark tests. Um, there is a sophistication to running and managing a qualified opportunity fund that just somebody has to have. So very important that it's not just it's the two together that need to exist in order to create this great tax benefit for investors in the end. Right. I gotcha. I gotcha. Yeah, it's uh it's a it's a difficult balance between doing the proper amount of due diligence and beating this ticking clock and making sure that your your clients the investors dollars get in before some of these benefits expire and the one general advice i would just give everybody as awesome of a tax break as this is it, don't over allocate to qualified opportunity funds let's say somebody bought a house for a million dollars and they sold it for 10 million. Wow, that's a little, 5 million. Okay, they've owned it for a long time. That's a $4 million gain. I, I would never, in my opinion, recommend that someone take $4 million just to, just to avoid paying a capital gain and put it all into a qualified opportunity fund if that was all of their net worth, right? That would just be, it would be very, very risky to do that. So I think using common sense, using, base, using the, the advantages, the tax advantages, and the investment opportunities that exist in the space as part of an overall financial strategy is extremely smart and extremely advantageous. And if people who are listening to your podcast haven't looked at that, they, need, they should talk to their advisors or um, find an advisor who can consult them in this area. Absolutely. Uh, getting back to broker-dealers and RIAs now, uh, what, what should broker-dealers and wirehouses and, and RIAs, independent advisors, what should they be aware of when considering funds for their platforms or when considering funds for their clients? And, and I think you've gotten into some of these issues already a little bit, but if you can just further expound. So to me, there's, there's two, maybe even three, but two critically important things. The first thing is, can the, the, the person or the people that are behind the entity, the entity or the people behind the entity, can they successfully run a business for 12 years that is heavily compliance centric in a dynamic environment because the rules are still getting clear? Do they have experience in running a compliant organization in a federally regulated environment as a fiduciary for 10 years plus? It, it, I guess you could say, well, maybe they can, we think they can. So I think looking at the, the, the person or the company that's bringing the fund to market, the fund sponsor, I guess I would say, can they do those things? Because if you can't do those things, the tax breaks are relevant because you're going to blow the tax break for the investors. And so it's critical that those things happen from a compliance and operations standpoint over not a one-year or two-year or five-year period, but over a 10, 12-plus year period. That by itself needs to be underwritten underwritten in my opinion. The second thing then, of course, is 
the investments themselves, right? Like, or if it's an, let's say it's a diversified fund where they're going to be buying several investments, you might not know what the assets are. Uh, what's the what's the history and experience of the investment managers at, at Parsonex? That's one thing we're, we look at um, on on our through our investment advisor that advises opportunity funds. Um, we have a couple of guys that have done about eleven and a half billion dollars of commercial transactions. Um, they that, that are part of the underwriting team there. So it's really important. I think that people are looking at that and not just saying, I think I can be successful because this looks awesome and it looks like a new space, but rather they have demonstrated that they've been successful on the investing side uh, in, in real estate and commercial transactions. And then of course, the third thing we've already talked about, it would be the fund structure. So I think if, if you have due diligence on the sponsor and their ability to run successfully run a qualified opportunity fund as a fiduciary. Uh, the second thing, then the investments themselves, like or or the the experience and track record of the investment manager, and then the third, um, of course, is then the the fund structure. And part of the investment evaluation, of course, is the developers they're working with, because in a development fund, development is the big risk factor. So uh, having proven developers in a particular market with particular expertise in that asset class. Very important. Right. So who's on the team? What type of experience do they have? Are they, are they capable of handling all of the compliance issues and, and running a business successfully over a, a long time frame? I think those are all good things to, to look at. It kind of brings me to my next question. Yeah, you, you know, you, Jonathan, you've been traveling a lot over the past few months going to many different conferences and and other events how how would you characterize the gold rush into opportunity zones what have you been seeing uh there definitely is a gold rush is a good is a good way to say it. it it does it depends which conference you go to i was at the imn conference uh in new york last week i was at the uh, um which is the information management network. They had, um, it was an alternative investment conference. I was on a panel there. Um, then the week before I was at the Institute for Portfolio Alternatives uh, in Chicago. Uh, it was like a registered investment advisor conference. Those are usually button down events. You got folks in suits, you know, they've invested in alternatives. They have a, you know, a fluent or family office uh, money uh, uh, that they're representing. Um, and then you have some of the other conferences where it's like it's generated such interest, which which can be a great thing, where everybody is just going to learning about opportunity zones, and either they own property or they have the ability to get property, and they're just excited about it. They're like, "Wow, this is this seems like a great thing," and that's good, by the way. But I would say that um, just because someone owns property in an opportunity zone or has a quote unquote deal doesn't mean it's a good deal. It, but then there are people who then want to be successful and maybe they already do own a property, you know, work with the professionals that are out there, work with uh, the, you know, the folks that bring the necessary expertise and experience in order to distribute funds, in order to manage funds, all those sort of things. I, I think that there's just, um, there's so much excitement about it, which is why your show has been so successful and why people are just a buzz around the industry. And that I actually think that's a great thing. Um, but I think that it just then adds 
to the, the it adds to the caution that we've already given on here that make sure you're asking the right questions, you're getting to know the people behind it. And and I think what happens in in a gold rush scenario is people tend to say, oh my gosh, it's an opportunity fund or it's an opportunity zone project. Of course, it's going to make money. And it's like, well, it might, but it might not, which is why you need underwriting and and due diligence and all those sort of things. Right. Absolutely. No, a lot of excitement here um, in this space, especially early on. A lot, of, a lot of people rushing into it. And 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 like you say, I think that's that's a good thing. Uh, but you know, if you're a potential investor, just make sure you do your proper due diligence and and know who you're writing those checks to, and, and make sure you that they have the expertise and the experience that's necessary to to run one of these funds properly. I'll give you a great analogy. It, it's like the Amazon effect, right? So you know, when Amazon announced that they were going to be having you know their their corporate headquarters would be outside of New York, and I didn't follow this, but I'm sure this is what happened. Of course, everything would have spiked in that area. Every property owner in that area would have said, oh my gosh, Amazon's moving here. Nope, that deal we were talking about doing last week, that's off the table. I need double the price to sell. Uh, of course, then things changed. And then Amazon said, yeah, you know what? We're not going to open up our headquarters in New York. And so probably within a week of that, there was a fire sale of assets that no, now no longer had... Uh, what they were asking a week prior. And so you have a little bit of that in the opportunity zone space. And I would say it, it will normalize itself here um, in that you'll have, if somebody wants, uh, developers are looking for sophisticated capital that can provide them you know, the support and the relationship to do what they do, which is development. Uh, property owners, yeah, they're going to probably get a premium right now for their um, for the properties they own in some of these areas that are that are attracting a lot of dollars. But at the end of the day, uh, I would just caution people to, to, to go out and, and do a good job, right? If people get too greedy in this space and say, oh, I, I, they're trying to, you know, it just doesn't work. The, the people need to be, use common sense and, and proper due diligence uh, if they want to succeed and build good long-term relationships. They want to succeed, I think, in this space. Right. No, I agree. I agree completely. I think that's what it's all about. Uh, we've been speaking largely about fees that investors can expect to pay so far throughout the course of our conversation today. Um, and a little bit, we got into due diligence too. I want to shift uh, to the fund side now, just so investors are aware of how expensive it is to to start a fund. And, and so possibly any potential uh, fund managers or real estate developers who are considering starting a fund might get a better idea of of what it takes uh, on the fund side how much can a fund expect to pay in starting costs and and how much does it cost basically to get a qualified opportunity fund off the ground the right way and and what is needed exactly it's a great question if you look at a typical investment structure let's say it's a 50 million dollar raise you're going to have one and a half to two and a half let's just say two percent two percent organization and offering expenses on a $50 million fund. That means it's a million dollars to start a $50 million fund. Or so if it's a $100 million fund, it could be same thing. And some people say, well, I only have 1% of organization and offering expenses. Okay. 1% of organization and offering expenses on a $100 million offering is $1 million that it would cost to start a fund. And people say, well, how can it be so expensive? Well, the first thing is if you're going to get great legal work done, it's not about just drafting up a PPM. I mean, there's complicated tax regs that need to be addressed you know doing doing a good offering document is going to cost seventy five hundred thousand dollars just 
just to get the legal side of it done properly, in my opinion. Um, you're then going to probably spend another $50,000 on due diligence reviews. You're going to um, have initial capital necessary for uh, investing or tying up deals, uh, not to mention making sure that you have your team in place for your investment managers, your developer development partners. Um, there's the marketing side, you know, that can get very, very expensive for for new folks or new sponsors to enter the space uh, because ultimately people want to work with people that they like and trust, but they have to know them before they like and trust them. So it's not like you just go out and st- say, I want to start a fund and please give me money. At least not in my experience. You never know when you have these gold rushes, like you said, but that's not the way it works. You have to build relationships, get to know people, be known in a particular segment or space. And that just takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. So bottom line is I would say that, you know, one to 2% of the offering costs of the, of the offering amount people want to raise is probably your startup costs. And we've had a couple experiences where we referred um, some folks who were uh, some folks who were talking to us that they said, Hey, can we start our own qualified opportunity fund? And we, we referred them to a law firm that we work with and that they're very um, well-known law firm and expensive. And or appropriately priced, I would say, but they said, well, I thought you could start a fund for $20,000. And we, we said, no, that's probably, probably not <laughs> the number that it's going to cost you to start. I think, I think our actual response was, well, good luck with that. If you think you can start a fund for $20,000. And so it, it, the answer is it just costs some money up front. Um, and you do need to make sure that you do things right. Because again, if you don't structure it right up front, if you don't run it right, throughout the 10, 12 year period. And then if you don't exit right, all of those things done improperly can blow what is otherwise this amazing tax benefit for investors. And so there needs to be a certain level of sophistication to the operation. And that does start with launching it from at least some sort of a position of financial strength. Right. Yeah. So, well, thank you for providing the specifics on, on those numbers there. That's that's not for the faint-hearted. Then, if you want to start a qualified opportunity fund, that's going to be raising some serious capital from outside investors. There's a lot of personnel costs, a lot of legal costs, a lot of marketing costs that you need to consider. And can I give one caveat to that, if it's okay, Jimmy? One caveat to that is that, per the legislation, you know, it defined like individual deals. Like, if you have a project in an opportunity zone, at, the structure being used is a qual. They're calling them qualified opportunity funds, but it might not be what we think of as a typical fund structure. It could just be a deal that is called a qualified opportunity fund. And and in that case, maybe that's different financial metrics, but it's probably not, it's still probably a fair amount of money, but it might not be, you know, on the high, like on the high end, what we were just talking about. Oh yeah. No, I think, I think you're right. I think if you're doing maybe just a one-off deal and maybe you're not raising outside capital, maybe you're just doing a friends and family type of deal, then then you can probably get away with with much lower costs to start this up. Maybe in that case, 20,000 would get you off the ground just fine. But Make sure your listeners know that if they're doing friends and family, they got to live with this decision for at least 12 years. So <laughs> it could make for awkward uh, family barbecues if it, if, if it doesn't work out. Yeah, that's a very good consideration to, uh, to keep in mind. Absolutely, Jonathan. Um, so with all these costs that we've discussed, uh, are there any other challenges in launching a qualified opportunity funder? What would you say is, or what, what, what do you think may be the biggest challenge in launching a qualified opportunity fund? It's creating a team either through direct, you know, employees, independent contractors, developers, or partners. It can be law firm partners. Um, I, I think you had some 
fund administrators um, on your program, program, it's putting together a team that has the necessary sophistication and, and knowledge to be successful in the space. I think that's, that's the real challenge because even for folks who know it really well, there are a lot of different complexities that exist in, in that I don't think people are always aware of. I'm not a tax expert, but even if you look at the tax implications uh, you know, on the real estate side where normally in a real estate fund, you have depreciation recapture. So, so if, if people are getting tax deductions throughout, you know, owning they're getting depreciation passed through as an investor in a real estate fund. Normally when it's sold, that is, that is recaptured and taxes ordinary income. But I, my understanding of it is, and talk to tax professionals on this, is that um, that that depreciation recapture is part of the capital gain that is then tax-free if it's for 10 years. So, I mean, there's a lot of like intricacies to some of these things that done properly can be enormously advantageous for investors, but done improperly would would uh, could blow it up. So I think it's just putting together the, together a team that knows all knows the space, knows all the different areas that you have to be successful in, uh, and and again that that are people that you want to be in business with that, that have a track record and that can can deliver on what they're talking about doing. Because the 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 strange thing in this entire market is, given it's such a long time frame. People are going to be long and gone before the the verdict is in on all this, right? I mean, twelve years. There'll be people that have retired or moved on to different careers. Um, it's going to be a twelve years is a long time. So, just putting together a, a team that can can execute in all the different areas we've been talking about. Yeah, it is a long time. Uh, definitely a long time frame holding these qualified opportunity funds, and there are so many different intricacies to be aware of, and so many different expertises are needed so many different areas of expertise are needed uh, it, it does at the end of the day it is all about the people right and, and making sure you've got the right team in place i agree uh jonathan this has been a pleasure speaking with you today i think uh we've we've covered a lot of good ground here i, I think there's been a good good episode for our listeners uh we, you know we, we covered some of the the different the different fees um in a way that that we haven't previously on this program so i i, I hope the listeners out there appreciate uh the efforts that you've gone to, to, to divulge some of the, uh, some of the fees, uh, here on our podcast today. So thank you. Uh, before we go, where can our listeners go to learn more about you and Parsonex? Well, uh, I'm the CEO of Parsonex Enterprises, but I would say that, uh, if, if they're interested in what we've been talking about, pxcapgroup.com is probably the website that they want to go to. Um, cause that's our, um, alternative investment, um, group that, that advises uh, in this area. Or the main website is parsonx.com, um, but that kind of links to a few of the different companies that we own. But I would say, yeah, we'd love to chat, and uh, we lo- we love networking with great people. So whether it's people that are looking for advice on on uh, what funds are out there, or whether it's people with uh, r- great real estate projects that they want to talk through, we love uh, we love being active and connected in the space. And uh, I think you've done a really good job, Jimmy, with. Um, your podcast and the website the, of just really bringing relevant and important information um, to what is a new area and in, in a, in a very important area in, in the real estate market. Well, thank you for the kind words, Jonathan. I'm doing my best and having fun at the same time. So it, it's my pleasure to, to do it. Uh, for our listeners out there, 
I'll have show notes for this episode on the Opportunity Zones database website. You'll find links to all of the resources that Jonathan and I discussed on today's show, and you can find those show notes at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. Jonathan, again, thank you for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting OpportunityDB.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.